Let's hear the Lord speak to us this morning from Ephesians 2, uh, 1 to 10. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of power over the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up, raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in, Jesus, in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Jesus Christ, created in Jesus Christ uh, for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Victoria. Let me start by asking you this question. Um, I don't know if you've ever done this. I did this week. Um, ask yourself, when you think of your family, so whatever family means to you, when you think of your family, what defines your family, right? What characterizes uh, your family? What, what kind of, uh, what traits make your family behave the way they behave and make them who they are, right? So when I was thinking about this week, the first thing I could think of is that uh, uh, the elder family are loud. We're a loud bunch. I know, surprise. I'm actually one of the quieter ones in my family, believe it or not. Um, am I? Haley would definitely say we're loud, right? If we, when we go out for dinner to a restaurant, we are in, there could be a stag party in the corner, we're still going to be louder. Like, it doesn't matter, we're the loudest family. But once you get past that and get to know us a wee bit, I think that the elder clan might be defined by um, sentimentality. Everything is, for us as a family, um, we, we, we like reminiscing about the past a lot. Christmas means so much to us. Birthdays mean a lot to us. Um, we're a sentimental bunch. Um, another example is when I was getting to know Haley's family for the first time um, uh, apart from the fact I found them all really weird um, was that struck me was how much they're fun loving they really love fun and they're generous these two things that, that kind of define her family is, is, is uh, generosity and a sense of fun which are two great things to define a family I think um, and I don't know what if you look at our little family what you might decide but basically every family has traits that will define them or will kind of you'll look at them and go oh that's what that that's what I think of when I think of that family um, and if you've been around village for any length of time you'll hopefully have heard us talk about church as family that's one of our core values as a as a church is that church is a family this idea that church is more than just a, an event that you come to on a Sunday it's more than a club that you're part of um, it's not something you just go to that, that we are actually brothers and sisters in Christ we'll come back to that more next week um, and God is our father and the relationships that we have the way we're related is 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 truer and deeper and far outlasting even our biological connections that we have because well you can't even trust biological connections right because family let us down people leave people die people get abandoned all these kinds of things but what we have here what we have as the family of God as as Jesus brothers and sisters um, is a real family and because we're family we want to at the start of the year September's kind of like the start of the year for us um, we want to take stock 
And we want to look at what characterizes us as a family, what makes us us, what gives, if, what gives this bunch its, its defining features, what makes village, village. Um, maybe, you've, um, maybe you noticed the banner on the railings outside, and on that is uh, our vision statement. Uh, it's what we want to define us as a church, and it, it's on the screen. Um, and this is what it says, maybe you've never paid attention to this, but we're going to look at this over the next three weeks. It says, Village Church Belfast desires to be a gospel-shaped community of people who love Jesus, each other, and our city of Belfast as we join God in the renewal of all things. I'll, just, uh, I'll say it again to give you time to kind of take that in. Village Church Belfast desires to be a gospel-shaped community of people who love Jesus, each other, and our city of Belfast as we join God in the renewal of all things. So if you're, if you're new, if you're exploring village, then this is a really good time uh, for you. You, you, get to, you get to learn about what makes us us and, and what's core to who we are. And this isn't a random statement. This isn't just something we, we pulled out of thin air, right? This is, this is, it's not just something that we put together because we think it sounds good. It's, it's a statement based on three core things that, which we believe are the, the building blocks of the Christian life. Three things that should define the Christian life. And these three things are gospel, community, and mission. And over the next three weeks, we're going to look at each one of these in turn, and we'll explain why those things are important and how we live those out in village. So the first thing to notice is that Village Church Belfast desires to be a gospel-shaped community. That's the gospel, that everything we do is shaped by the gospel, and that's what we're going to look at today. But not only that, we're a gospel-shaped community of people who, who love Jesus and love each other. That's a community, and we're going to look at that next week. And then on the third week, um, we're going to look at how we love not just Jesus and each other, but as an outflow of that, love our city of Belfast as we join God in the renewal of all things. And we'll explain those things as, as we go through. Um, so today, we're starting with the gospel. Seems like a good place to start. Um, it's the first family trait of village, that we're shaped by the gospel. In our vision statement, being gospel-shaped comes first. And what I want to do this morning is explain why being shaped by the gospel is the first and most important thing that we want to characterize us. So we want to be, we want to be characterized by people who pray. We want to be characterized as church's family. We want to be characterized by being able to have spiritual authenticity and being real with one another and lots of other things. But, but, but really, the core of all of that, the, the foundation of all of that is being shaped by the gospel. And we're going to look at why. Um, so I'm going to pray because uh, we can never pray enough. And I need God's help and you need God's help uh, to listen to me. I <laughs> you need God's help to listen to me like it's that bad. No, you need God's help to hear what he has to say to you this morning. So let me pray for us and then we'll dive in. Uh, Father, we, do, we just want to thank you um, that we get to be a family. That, that, that as Steph has just already encouraged us that, that you found us, that you came looking for us. Um, Lord, we want to be obedient children and we want, to, we want to hear what you have to say to us this morning. So, so give us ears to hear. Help me to speak clearly um, and speak words that are only true and only from you. In Jesus' name, for your glory. Amen. Um, so what do we mean? What do I mean when I say to you we want to be gospel-shaped? Um, it's kind of like one of those uh, taglines. If, if, you, if you're familiar with the, the kind of Christian world at all, if you're to go online or you go to a Christian bookshop or, or whatever, you could find any number of 
any number of things to do with being gospel-centered, gospel-shaped, um, gospel-driven. I can't believe it's not the gospel. Anything at all, like all these things. But what does it mean? Because just like anything, right, if you say something enough, it can kind of start to lose its meaning. You ever do that? You say a word enough and then you kind of, it starts to lose its meaning. And just because we say we want to be gospel-shaped does not mean our church is necessarily shaped by the gospel, right? And so we need to define what we mean by this. So if I asked you this morning, if I said, what is the gospel, right? If, I, if, I, if, I, if we went around the room and, and all of you had to say, answer the question out loud, what is the gospel? I wonder what you'd say. My guess is that as we went around the room, as we went around the room we'd probably get quite a few different answers. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. But let's define what we mean by the gospel. Uh, because the word itself uh, just means good news. This is what it means. It literally means good news. So, and it, it's the announcement of something good that has already happened. So uh, in, in ancient Greece, when uh, uh, the battle was won, there would be a messenger. You've maybe seen this, and you've maybe seen this in the, I don't know if you've seen the film 300, but there's one guy, the guy with the eye patch, he has to go back to the city and, and tell everyone that the, that the, the, the battle is won. And his job is he's an evangelist. That's literally where we get this word from. The Greek word is evangelion. It's where we get evangelism, delivering good news. Evangelist is someone who delivers good news. So the gospel is good news. So what is this good news? Well, quite simply, the good news and we can never get tired of saying this, and, and we'll never stop saying it. The good news is that Jesus died, was buried, and rose again from the dead. That's the core of everything. Listen to how Paul describes it in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, now I, I would remind you, brothers and sisters, he's writing to this church, and he says, I want to remind you, brothers and sisters, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you're being saved. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. And what is it? This is how Paul, this is how the Bible, this is how God defines it. The gospel is that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. That just means that, that Christ died uh, in accordance with the scriptures. just means that, that literally everything in the Old Testament was fulfilled by, by Christ dying that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day. So what's the good news? Christ died for our sins, he was buried, and on the third day he rose again. That's the good news. Now maybe you're in a place right now where you're saying, well, I don't see how that's particularly good news. Well, don't worry, we'll get there. But if someone ever asks you, what's the gospel? You can talk about how the gospel has changed your life. You can talk about what it means to you, but you need to remember these three things, that, that Christ died for our sins, that he was buried, and on the third day he rose again. So simple. Even kids can remember that. So why is it good news? Why is it so important? Why is it that we want our church to be shaped by this, these three things? Why, why, why does Paul say in, in this passage in Corinthians that we should keep it as first importance? Why is this first importance? Well, this is where we get to our uh, text from Ephesians 2 this morning. So keep, keep your Bibles open at Ephesians chapter 2. Like Victoria said, if you don't have one, there's some at the back beside Ronan there. You can just go and grab one. And if you need a Bible, if you don't have one, just take it home with you. That's, that's our gift to you. Um, uh, 
Paul, the Apostle Paul, is writing this uh, letter to the church in Ephesus. You might remember the church in Ephesus. We just finished this series, the seven letters to the seven churches. The the church in Ephesus was the first one that that Jesus wrote to. But before Jesus wrote to it, Paul wrote to it. And here he's uh, he's trying to he's trying to uh, encourage them uh, to uh, to hold fast to the gospel Why? because there's there's times of trouble and times of persecution coming ahead, and and he and he does this by by reminding them of of the of what the gospel is right. He, just as Hebrews says that it was for the joy that was set before him that Christ endured his suffering on the cross, and so in the same way for us, it's because of the joy set before us. Because of the gospel, that, that we, we endure all kinds of, 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 of trials, whether it's sickness or grief or persecution or just life, right? But Paul really wants him to know exactly, and wants us to know, that we, we want to know who we are and, and what God has done for us. And so the passage kind of follows this structure, these 10 verses. He says, he says we were dead in our sins, and then God intervened because of his great love, and now we're alive in Christ. That's really simple. We were dead in our sins. God intervened because of his love. That's the act of Jesus, uh, Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. And now we're alive in Christ. Actually, the, the, these 10 verses um, in the Greek, Paul's writing, and it's almost like he, get, he just gets into this flow, this stream of consciousness where he's writing. It's like he gets so wrapped up in, in just the amazingness of the gospel. He, can't, he doesn't even start a new sentence it's just all one big long sentence it just flows out of him he's just caught up in this moment of thinking about who we were and and what God has done for us but he starts and this is where we need to start why we need the gospel in the first place this is our first lesson this morning uh, who we once were our, our need of the gospel uh, look at verses one to three with me. I'm going to do this from time to time, just dip back in and read bits. So, so keep it open in front of you. He says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind." This is who we once were. Paul doesn't paint a very good picture, does he? Um, he, he? He says, we were dead in the trespasses and sin in which we once walked. In other words, we were corpses. There was, no, there was no life in us. We were like zombies. There was nothing but decay and rot. That was the state we were in. And, and I wondered, I mean, this is quite a, it's quite a graphic image that he starts with. Like we were dead. And I wondered, why does he describe this this way? Why does he use it this way? And the answer is because somebody who's dead has no way of helping themselves out of being dead, right? When, when, if you're dead, a dead person can't do anything. A dead person is just dead. All there is is decay. They, they, all they do is lie there and, and rot. And, and they're not even aware that they're dead. And this is what Paul is trying to convey. He's saying, listen, before Jesus intervened, before God intervened because of his love... We were dead. We were dead. We were completely helpless outside of Christ. There was nothing we could do to improve our situation. And more than that, we, couldn't even, we didn't even have the inclination that we needed our situation improved. Because we couldn't. Because we were dead. We were dead and we didn't even know we were dead. And not only that, just as a, 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 
just as a corpse's only path is to decay, without intervention, so was ours. We were headed to destruction. Our fate, was, our fate of death was sealed, if you like. You see how helpless we were without Jesus? This is why Paul says we were dead. But he also says that um, we walked in trespasses and sins. Now this is, you might be thinking, well, that's kind of like old school language. Well, it is. It was written 2,000 years ago. It's in the Bible, so we're going to look at it and understand what it means. See, I don't know about you, but firstly, you might not like talking about sin. And secondly, you, you might have a, 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 an understanding that sin is something, sin is all the bad things you do, right? I was taught that growing up. Like, you know, if you went back there and asked the kids, like, what is sin? Uh, sin, bad words, lying, uh, stealing, you know, all those things. But that's not what sin is. That's the result of sin. The word dead shows us that sin is not so much an action as it is a condition. Sin is a condition. Our actions are symptoms of our dead condition. Our sinful actions are the result of our sinful condition. Right? So uh, you don't cough and sneeze because... You don't cough and sneeze... Um, just because you cough and sneeze... Uh, I'm trying to get this phrase out. I can't... How did I put it in my mind? You don't have a cold because you cough and sneeze. You cough and sneeze because you have a cold. Does that make sense? I finally got there. Wow. I know. I watched match that day before I went to bed last night and got all depressed about how bad Man United are. So that's weighing on me. Forgive me, Lord. Um, and, and it's the same for us as sinners, right? We don't, we, we're not sinners because we do bad things. We're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. Sin is a, a condition, right? And, and if, you, if, if you're a parent or you've ever been around kids, you'll know this, right? It's not like you have to, you know, at two years old, pack your kids up and send them off to sin school for a while to learn how to do bad stuff. Like, they just know how to do it. Like, Abby, Abby is, um, she's not even two yet. She's 20 months old. And she knows how to disobey so spectacularly. She'll turn and run the other way when you tell her to come to you, or whatever it is. It's, what, it's what's called total depravity, that we are completely depraved before we have Jesus. It just means that we are helpless to do anything except sin. And listen, this might sound all depressing, but it's really important that we understand this. Because if we don't grasp how helpless we are outside of Christ, then we'll just end up having this diminished view of Jesus. The work of Jesus will just be less if we don't realize that how depraved we were. Like if Steph doesn't realize that she was lost and, and God found her, then we have this, well, you know, I, I chose this way of life. Or That's not what we're talking about here. We don't want the work of Jesus to lose its magnitude. And... and this goes, uh, this goes against like, kind of the general narrative of the world, doesn't it? Right? Kind of one of the main, the predominant worldviews is that, that human beings are basically good. I, even he I heard this on a, a TV show the other day, and, and the guy just was like, well, you know, I just believe that humans are basically good. That left our own devices will work things out and do the right thing. And I was like, well, we've been doing that for all of history, and it hasn't gone that well, right? And we don't even have to look at other people. We just have to look at our own lives and, and see the self-destructive patterns of behavior that we have. The Bible says that we're born dead in our sins, that we're by nature children of wrath, unable to help ourselves and on our way to decay and destruction. 
I might have used this. I think I have used this analogy before, but I'm going to use it because it's real from my life and it's funny. Um, uh, before I... Uh, before I was married, I lived with John for a while, and then before that, I lived with a group of guys in a flat, and that was a you know, that was a bit of a that was a you know that was a four lads in a flat flat, um, and we were getting ready to move out, and I noticed a, a mystery Tupperware in the back of the fridge with ice around it and stuff. You know the mystery Tupperware? Don't ever open the mystery Tupperware. So I thought, well, being from Ballymena, I thought, well, I'm not going to waste a good Tupperware, so I'll take it out and wash it, and it'll be fine. And I opened it. And after I came around, having faded from the smell, uh, I realized what was inside was what used to be chicken, but was now kind of just a gloopy mess. Um, and you know what I didn't do? I didn't think, you know what would make this chicken okay? If I just put a, bit, a few spices on it or cover it in barbecue sauce, it'd be good to go. No, you don't, you don't do that, right? The problem is that, the problem is that it's rotten. You, you can't stop being rotten. And it was dead when I put it in the fridge, I don't know how many months before that, but like, and, well, at least I think it was dead. And, and yeah, you can preserve it in the fridge for a little while. You can even, uh, you know, you can delay the decay. You can cover up with, 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 with smells, with spices, whatever. But because it's dead, it's going to decay. And we are, outside of Jesus, already spiritually dead. And all we can do is rot. And maybe we can smell okay for a while, Maybe we can do some good things. Maybe we can go to church. Maybe we can become religious. Maybe we can have good manners. Maybe we can become educated or really cultured. But we're dead. And because we're dead in our sins, no amount of behavioral changes could ever fix that. Behavioral changes only affect the outside. They don't affect the problem within. And this is what we were like, Paul says. And there's one more part of this being dead that I want to pull out before I move on. Finally, he's going to move on. <laughs> Look at verse 3 for a second. He says, um, at the end of, ver- uh, I'll just read all of verse 3. He says, Among whom we, o- we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Look at this language. We were by nature children of wrath, right? It sounds like a really... Good name for a heavy metal band in the 80s, Children of Wrath. Probably is. There probably is a band called that. But what does it mean? Okay, this is what it means, and we need to be clear about this. We are descendants of Adam. And, and, and as such, we're born, uh, we, inher- we inherit the family traits, i.e. the curse of the fall, right? We inherit the, the disobedience of our ancestral line. So we're born with this nature that is disobedient and is cut off from God. And because of that, we're subject to the wrath of God. So Paul says we are by nature. It's in our very DNA. We're children of wrath. And so we require a new birth. We need a new family line. We need a new inheritance, right? But we're totally helpless to do anything about it in ourselves. We don't even know that we need that. We don't even realize. Think of all your friends who aren't Christians. Do any of them realize, oh, I really need a a change in who I am. No, we don't realize it before Jesus intervenes. And this is who we once were. This is why we needed the gospel. And this is why we start with the gospel in this church. And thankfully, we don't stop there. In the next few verses, Paul goes on to show us what God has done. This is the work of the gospel. I'm going to read verses 4 to 9. So, yeah, read along with me. It says, uh, but God, 
being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. I think that Ephesians 4 the second verse of, or the fourth verse of Ephesians 2, Ephesians 2, 4, contain probably the two most important words ever written in history. But God. Maybe you need to let that sink in for a second. I know I do. But God. You were helpless. But God. You were dead. But God. You see, we were helpless but not hopeless because hope came from another place. But God, God intervened. It's like he came into the tomb where we were rotten in decay and pulled us out and breathed life into our decaying body and brought us back again. And why did he do this? Because he loves us. Being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loves us. Listen, uh, I want to stop here for a second because I I want you all to hear this. God loves you. God loves you. And maybe you're not hearing that, but God loves you. And he loves you with a great love. He, uh, He loves you so much because of this great love that he has raised you from death to life. God loves you. Please hear that. Maybe you haven't considered that in a long time. Maybe you don't feel like that. Maybe you've never considered it. But God loves you. It doesn't matter who you are, what you've done, what your family is like, where you went to school, how you vote. None of that stuff matters because God loves you. And because of that love, God has made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him. Because of this love that God has loved us with, that God loves us with, he has made us alive together with Christ. We've been raised up with Christ. And so think about this. Just as Jesus' body was in the tomb and the power of God did something there and brought that body back to life, that's what, that's what happens in the soul of anyone who believes in Jesus. Just in the way that, that God brought Jesus back to life from the dead, he's brought us, if you're a Christian, he's brought you back to life. He's brought you from death to life. If, and if you're a Christian this morning and if you're trusting in Jesus, then you need to realize something, that, that this is miraculous. It's miraculous. You've, been, you've literally been raised from the dead. And, and becoming a Christian isn't just, it's not, like, you know, I'm, it's not like choosing to live a certain way. It's not like, well, I'm going to be a bit healthier, so I'll go to the gym a bit more and you know, I'll go vegetarian or whatever. Um, I was going to make a joke, but I'm not, because some people are vegetarians and that's fine. Um, did I just make a joke anyway? That's actually fine. Um, But it's not like that. We don't just decide to live a better way. Becoming a Christian is a miracle. 
And it's a miracle that you could never perform for yourself. And it's something that because of the unending and irresistible grace of God that he has done for you through the work of Jesus, which is that, 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 that Jesus died, was buried, and rose again. Jesus entered death not so that he could be raised from the dead, but so that we could be raised from the dead. He went down into death so that he could pull us up from death with him. And I love thinking about this on, you know, on, on that first Easter Sunday morning when that stone was rolled away and I don't know how it happened but when Jesus took that first breath again and walked out of that tomb he brought you and me with him. And you notice this. Paul writes this in the past tense, right? By the way, when you're reading anything tenses are important. The Tenses in the Bible are important. It's in the past tense because Paul's referring to, to what Jesus has already done. He's not talking about some gradual process of becoming more religious. He's not, uh, he's not talking about how you slowly become, uh, you know, uh, alive from being dead. No, and, and don't get me wrong, as we progress in our Christian journey, there is transformation and gradual change that happens. But, but that death to life is instantaneous. This, this is what Jesus did for you in the past, 1 Peter 3.18 says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. That just means that, that Jesus, the righteous one, died for us, the unrighteous. See, on the cross, Jesus became our sin. That, that means that he died a sinner's death. Jesus on the cross was treated by God like he was a follower of Satan, like he was a son of disobedience, like he was a child of wrath. And he did that because that's who we were. He bore our sin in our place. This is, this is the amazing grace of God. And the only reason Jesus died is because of our sin, so that he could heal that separation that we had from God, that he might bring us to God. Paul continues in verse six, and he says, again, past tense, that, that not that God will see us, but that God has seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ. Listen, if you're a Christian, in God's eyes, you are already seated with Christ at the place of honor around God's throne. You could not be in a higher place in heaven closer to God than you are. God has literally put us in Jesus' seat. And notice that he says that we are seated in the heavenly realms in Christ. This is what he says, in Christ. This is our union with Christ. This is what this is called, union with Christ. We are one with Jesus. We are in Jesus and all that was ours, our guilt and our shame uh, became his and all that is his, his glory and honor and peace and mercy and grace becomes ours. And all the blessings that the Father has heaped on the Son are ours. We're seated in the heavenly realms because we are in him. We are united with Christ. God made us alive together with Christ. Now this changes everything, doesn't it? Because we're not the same anymore. We're not the same anymore. We literally have a new nature. We literally have a new, not literally new DNA, but a new spiritual DNA. We're a new creation. And so we can't help but be shaped by the gospel. Any more than I can help being shaped by my bald DNA. That's something that's in my family line and something I have to live with. But we are in Jesus' family and so we're shaped by, by the gospel DNA, if you like. 
And so what does this mean? Well, Paul finishes up by talking about who we now are, and this is us being shaped by the gospel. So we know that the message of the gospel is good news, right? That, I mean, that's incredible news that we've been raised from death to life. But what does it mean? What does that mean for us? What does that look like? So I guess what I'm asking is, what do we say when we desire to be gospel-shaped? What does it mean to be shaped by the gospel? Have a look at verse 8 of our passage. It says, for, grace, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God. Paul uses this past perfect tense, this complete tense. He says, you have been saved. It's done. It's a complete work. There's nothing more to add. There's nothing you can contribute. Now, sometimes we think of our salvation something like this analogy. Sometimes we think, well, I was drowning in the sea and Jesus came by in a lifeboat and threw in one of those life rings and pulled me into the boat and saved me. Now, that sounds pretty good, but that's not the gospel. That's not what happened at all. The truth is that I was face down, dead, having drowned, floating on the surface of the water. Jesus gets out of his boat and jumps into the water, drowns himself, somehow defeats the water and is not drowned and comes back to life and then brings me not only onto the boat but onto the dry land. That's what happens. Your salvation has nothing to do with you, which is why just so encouraged to hear Steph saying that the God came and found me. It's because of his mercy. It's because of the great love with which he loved you. And it's by his grace that you're saved. Your salvation has nothing to do with you. It's a gift. Your salvation is only because of God's grace. And this is why Paul goes on to say in verse 10 that we are God's workmanship. In other words, we're his masterpiece. Now, a masterpiece can't create itself, right? How many paintings has Glenn done that have just magically appeared by themselves? None. He creates them. Look closely at verse 10. He says, Where is workmanship? Created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. Now, the Greek word used here, you don't have to remember this, but it's interesting, is, is poema. And it's, it, it means a work of art. And it's, where, it's actually where we get the word poem from. And this is what it means. It's something which is created that through its creation reflects the character and nature of its creator. So we're created... As this, this masterpiece, and now we reflect the character and nature of our creator. We're God's work of art. <laughs> I mean, look at me, of course we are. Only joking, that's a joke. We're God's poem. We are God's poem. He has started writing a poem with your life. He's composing your life into this beautiful song. A song that glorifies him. This is what it means to be shaped by the gospel. I love it when um, you see a sculpture and you can see thumbprints in it or even just a trace of a fingerprint. If we're a sculpture, then God's fingerprints are all over us. This idea is used in the Bible when it speaks of creation because at creation, God spoke something into being out of nothingness. He started with nothing and he spoke a light that did not exist into absolute darkness. And when God saved you, if you're a Christian... He took a righteousness that did not exist and spoke it into being in you. And when you put your trust in Jesus, God declares that you are now alive. He speaks into being. It's declared, it's done. Which means that that all you have to do is submit yourself to Jesus and let his righteousness, the righteousness that God has spoken into being in you, just work through you. That's what it means to be shaped by the gospel. Being shaped by the gospel isn't about living a holy life. Living a holy life is, is a result of being shaped by the gospel. 
Being shaped by the gospel is not about you doing anything for God. It's about letting Christ do everything through you. Let me ask you this. How often do you feel like a failure as a Christian? Five, six, seven times a day? Probably what it is for me. Maybe more. That's probably on a good day. Seriously. And maybe you're like, no, I don't believe you. No, seriously. And if you're honest with yourself, maybe you feel like that all the time. And most of the time when we do feel like failures as Christians, it's because we're looking at our own performance. We're looking at our ability to be a Christian. Well, I didn't, uh, I didn't pray enough, or uh, I didn't read my Bible, or uh, I haven't been very kind, or did you those things I thought about the other day, that's awful. I'm so selfish all the time. Why can I not have more faith? Well, listen, as long as we keep basing our salvation on what we do or don't do, we're going to keep failing. But you know what never fails? Jesus' blood never fails. The gospel never fails. And so all any of us can do is keep going back to the gospel and rely on his grace and mercy. No matter how much you mess up or have messed up or in fact are even going to mess up, there's nothing you can do to make God love you any less. And while we're at it, there's nothing you can do to make God love you anymore. Just in case you're tempted to try and earn his love. Your salvation, your life, your future is based entirely and completely on what Jesus, on who Jesus is and what he has done. That's it. That Jesus died, he was buried, and he rose again. And all this week, right, I've been trying to, I was saying to John earlier, I've been trying to define, uh, thinking about being gospel-shaped, and I've been trying to define it by things that we do. Oh yeah, well, we want to have gospel-shaped, you know, attitude to work. Yes, we do, and all those different things. But that's the wrong way around, right? We don't don't try and mold and shape our behavior to the gospel so that we can be gospel-shaped. We're shaped by the gospel because of this new life that Christ has given us. And because of that, our behavior is shaped of the gospel, In other words, it's the simple way to think of it. Our nature is shaped by the gospel, and so our actions are shaped by the gospel. So before you were saved, everything about you found its purpose in in earthly, temporary things. But now, now that Jesus has, has pulled you out of the tomb, out of the water, whatever analogy you want to use, everything about you finds its purpose in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Your life is no longer about you. It's not about how you feel from day to day, right? That comes and goes. It's not about how well or how badly things are going for you. Your life is just about resting on the death and resurrection of Jesus and just living from that. It's about shaping your life in the fact that Christ died, that he was buried and that he rose again. But you're like, well, Andrew, that's cool, but how do we do that? I think it's really simple. And this is something we'll say a lot. Um, and, and maybe you've heard me say it, I hope you have. Um, one of the things that shapes our church and we want to shape the culture is asking this simple question. How does the gospel apply to this situation? That's it. How does the gospel apply here, right? In every area of our lives, we need to ask ourselves, how does the gospel apply here? So in our marriages, we apply the gospel by, by constantly pursuing each other and putting each other first in love because that's what Christ has done for us. Or when somebody wrongs us or hurts us, we don't don't need to wait for an apology to forgive them. We forgive them because Christ didn't wait for us to realize we did something wrong. He just forgave us. 
Or when we sin and mess up, we apply the gospel not by, not by getting down in the dumps and, and wallowing in our own failure, but by resting the fact that our salvation is not based on our righteousness, but the righteousness of Christ. We remember the gospel and thank God that what, for who Jesus is and, and that his death and resurrection covers all my past, present, and future sins. Maybe you're a new Christian. Maybe you've been a Christian for a long time. And I'm nearly done, I promise. I think. Maybe you've been a Christian for a long time or you're a new Christian or maybe you're not a Christian. But here's the thing about being gospel-shaped that defines village and defines us as a family. We need the gospel just as much now as we did before we were saved. We should start every day by just saying to ourselves, I need the gospel today. This is one of the things that characterizes us, that we're all equal in how much we need the grace of Jesus. And by the way, just because I'm the guy that stands up here and says this stuff every Sunday, doesn't mean that I don't need the gospel any less than anyone else. Trust me. We're all equal. And the moment that we start to think that the gospel is only for people who don't know Jesus is the moment that our self-righteousness just takes over. And our worship services become about what we give to God rather than about what God continues to give to us. And if, if the gospel is misunderstood or absent or assumed even, our church will just become inward focused, performance driven and, and will lack joy. And we'll become interested only in what we're supposed to do instead of what Christ has already done. But what's the opposite? You see, when we're gospel-shaped, when the gospel is given first importance, like Paul says in Corinthians, our church, you know what our church will become? It'll become a hospital for sinners. It'll become a refuge for weary people. It'll become a beacon of hope for those in need. And when the gospel is centered, our worship will be saturated by humble dependence, that we all need the gospel. And our fellowship, how we interact with one another, will be focused on what unites us rather than what's different about us. Our discipleship, how we lead one another to know Jesus, will be just about reminding each other of, of God's acceptance of us in Christ, which will just make us want to know him more and obey his commands. And, and as a result, and we'll look at this in two weeks' time, the natural result will be mission, that we'll just want to share this good news with other people. That's what it means to be shaped by the gospel. That's why we want our church to be shaped by the gospel. And I want to finish with this one final thought as we kind of tie all this together. Are you getting how important the gospel is, by the way? Here it is. Most of the time, we think about our salvation, right? So being made right with God, or being more like Jesus, and one day our, our place in heaven, our glorification. We think of that as just like some kind of future hope, don't we? We're like, oh, I'm so glad I'm going to heaven. Like we can just ignore everything that's going on around us in the world. And I get that. I think that's important. And our, our, our salvation is a future hope, in part. And we should, that should be our motivation and our hope. But here's the point. According to this passage we just read today in Ephesians 2, our salvation is not just a future hope. Our salvation is a present reality. And if we could even grasp this for a minute, if we could see that we were dead and because of Christ's love for us, we're now alive if we could see that, I wonder how quickly our priorities would shift. You see, we are saved by grace. We are seated in the heavenly realms. We are in Christ. We are his masterpiece. 
And most of the time, we just find it hard to, to, to believe, don't we? Because we exist in a broken world, right? We're all still battling, messing up, and sinning all the time. We're, still, we're all still grieving loved ones that have passed away. We're all still seeing our friends reject God. And it's hard to grasp the truth of this nature, of this present reality, part of our salvation. Because when we look at the world around us, all seems lost. But here's the truth, that we are in Christ Jesus, that it's a done deal, it's secure, it's happening. Us being seated in the heavenly places with Jesus, in Jesus, is as sure as us sitting in this room right now. And we need to hold on to this. And if we could grasp this even for a minute, I wonder how, you would, how you, your life would be different. How would you worry about money? Would you worry about what people think of you? Would you be afraid to share the gospel? Would you have different priorities? Would you treasure different things? Because here's the truth, and I'm nearly done, I promise. The truth is that we used to be dead, but now we're alive in Christ. It's okay to say amen to that, by the way. We used to have no hope, but now we're saved by grace. We used to follow the course of this world, but now we're seated in the heavenly realms. We used to be in our nature children of wrath, but now our nature is that we are in Christ. This is our future hope, and in Jesus, this is our present reality. And we need to remind each other of this all the time, every day. We need to revel in it. We, we need to allow it to become our truth. And, as, uh, and we need to lead each other into this. This is why in Village we have missional communities and core groups. And we'll talk more about that next week. So that we can be in each other's lives and, and help each other apply the gospel. Hey, how, are you gonna apply, how does the gospel apply to the situation? That's what we ask each other all the time. Remind, it, does, hey, it doesn't matter that you screwed up. Repent, say sorry, but you know what? Jesus' blood covers that. We need to let our conversations and relationships be shaped by the gospel. And share the truth of it. Listen, this is it. We were dead, but God intervened. And we're alive in Christ. And we are his masterpiece. What's the good news? The good news is Jesus died, he was buried, and he rose again. And I'm just praying that, that God will help us to live lives shaped by this amazing truth. Let me, let me pray for us.